through. Uh, and so we're at Matthew chapter 17 in kind of the middle third. And I believe we'll finish up 17 next week. So if you turn in your Bibles to verse 14, chapter 17, and we will see what God's Word says. Verse 14, And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him, and kneeling before him, said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic, and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. And then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. This is God's Word. Let me pray. Father God, we thank You for Your Word. It is a gift to us. It has the power of salvation, the power to restrain us, to lead us, to protect us, to change us from the inside out. So we ask You will do that today. Move me out of the way. Holy Spirit, speak the words that we need to hear whether it be words of comfort or conviction. And let us, Father, be more in love with you as we meet here today. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. So, by way of just reminder, we uh, chapter 17 is one of the most, um, I guess, important or, or infamous passages in Matthew where we just studied the transfiguration. And so Peter, James, and John, three of Jesus' twelve disciples, had uh, followed Jesus up this mountain, and there um, they experienced something that no other disciples and really no one else has experienced uh, since. This uh, Jesus had told them prior in Matthew 16 and in other places, he uh, was a servant who was basically going to suffer many things. He had been called and was considered a false teaching rabbi whom he said, would be rejected by those who called him that, the Jews and the leadership of Israel. He was also called demon-possessed and later a dissident who was executed by the state, if you will, Rome. And Jesus predicted that all these things would happen. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be killed. And yet, in this moment, he reveals his true identity to these three disciples. He reveals in all His glory that He is King. That He is in control. That He is good. And even though He may be safe, He's, I'm sorry, good, He may not be safe. It reminds me of that quote, if you've read Chronicles of Narnia, where they're speaking about Aslan the lion, and they describe Him as being very good, but not safe. And so Jesus has revealed Himself as not safe, like, I am a servant, I'm going to suffer, and yet I am king and glorious, and they're terrified by what they see, and they bow before Him in fear. And He comforts them and says, don't be afraid. This moment on the mountain that they have is going to be this monument for them that they'll hold on to when life gets very difficult. For Peter, James, and John in particular, who will all die for their faith, they will use this to not only be encouraged, 
perhaps as they die, but encourage other Christians who are suffering and being persecuted and say, we saw who Jesus is. We know who Jesus is. He's on His throne. We saw it with our own eyes. Have faith. But if we're honest, faith is pretty darn easy when you're on the mountain with Jesus. It's easy to believe in Jesus when you see with your own eyes all His glory in a moment. What's difficult is when you come off the mountain, which is where most of life takes place. Those mountaintop experiences are helpful and encouraging and strengthening for the times in the valley, for the times as we're walking through what is a meat grinder of life. So the three disciples come down the mountain with Jesus. And immediately they go from basking in the presence of the glory of God to dwelling in the brokenness of a world full of sin. Instantly. Presumably the nine other disciples have been at the bottom of the hill waiting for Jesus along with some crowds. And when they were on the mountain, they heard a father's voice speaking about his son, namely Jesus, saying, this is my son whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And as they come down the mountain, they hear another father's son or father's voice about his son. And in this time, the father's crying out, help my demon-possessed son who's destroying himself. The Father explains to Jesus that while He was on the mountain, He brought His Son, again, to these nine disciples, and they were not able to help. And that's surprising because in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus gave authority to the disciples over spirits and the power to heal, and they were able to do that in Matthew chapter 10. They came back celebrating, like, look what we can do. He's like, don't get too excited. But they had that power, and now they don't. Something's happened. And when the Father tells him that they couldn't do anything, Jesus immediately rebukes not just the demon, but before that, He rebukes the people. He says, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Jesus basically complains, and I like that. right? Like, How long? Man, you guys. And he complains because he cares, and he complains because he wants it fixed, and he intends to fix it, but in that moment he's frustrated. And he's not just frustrated at the crowds or the Jewish leaders. I think in a moment he's rebuking his own disciples as faithless. The story is a little bit reminiscent of an Old Testament story. Matthew, more than any other gospel writer, is intending to kind of connect with Jewish history, and he has many prophecies, and is written really to Jews. And it's reminiscent of when Moses was on top of the mountain, and he experienced God's glory, and he received the, the law as God spoke it to him. And then he came down off the mountain, along with Joshua, who was waiting for him about halfway. And as Joshua, who's a general, right, he's like, Ooh, I hear something going on in the camp. It must be war. And Moses listens and says, that ain't war. That's a dance party, right? There's something going on down there that's not good. And what had happened was the leaders who had been left in charge had lost control. And instead of leading the people to worship God, Aaron, his brother, led them into false worship. And they built this golden calf and they worshipped it in the 
most craziest of ways, losing control, dance party, orgy filled. It was opposite of what God would want them to do. So similarly, obviously not exactly the same, Jesus comes down to see that his leaders have kind of lost control. And even though they didn't build some demon god of gold or organize a dance party, you have a demon-possessed boy who is flopping and flipping and throwing himself into fire and water and they can't do anything about it. And you ask, why? Something changed in the faith of these disciples. And some would argue that they lost faith. And I would say, I don't think they lost faith as much as they misplaced it, similar to what the Israelites did. Instead of worshiping God, they're worshiping something else. And I would perhaps suggest it's themselves. So the disciples approach Jesus privately. So Jesus, um, why could we not cast out this demon? And he tells him very bluntly, because of your little faith. And Jesus makes it, he makes it pretty clear that you can be identified as a disciple, you can possess little faith. Which, if the rebuke is clear, little faith is akin to faithlessness. Just like the world. They have little faith. Not a little faith. Little faith. Without faith, the Bible says, it is impossible to please God. Faith is presented as essential to our lives. It is the beginning of salvation. It is part, and, and part of living. It is, in many ways, fundamental to overcoming whatever we experience in the world. The Bible says that faith is what justifies. Faith is what sanctifies. Faith is what empowers us. Faith is what protects us. It even calls it a shield. And Jesus here doesn't tell us that we need big faith that's impressive. He says we need a, a little faith that's genuine. So what is a little faith? Or I should say, what is little faith? That's what I want to talk about. What it is, what causes it, and how do you fix it? Well, including this text, as we get into uh, chapter 17 here, verse uh, 14 to 20, Jesus uses the term little faith five times, and they're all in the book of Matthew. One may be in Luke, but it's not exactly the same. And so in other words, this is the first time he's used it. So as we survey what he says in Matthew, we'll understand what it means to have little faith. And I'm convinced that many of us here, including myself at one time or another, and perhaps right now, have little faith. Not a little faith, little faith. How do we know that? Well, let's see what characterizes it. So if we go back, I'm going to be flipping back in Matthew. We'll start in Matthew chapter 6. The first time that Jesus uses this term, little faith, is when He's preaching through the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus basically, after revealing to Him what it means to be basically a Christian, giving Him description, the Beatitudes, not how to become a Christian, but when someone has changed what they actually end up living like, He goes into Matthew chapter 6 and He talks about not being anxious for our daily needs. You may be familiar with the passage. He says, don't be anxious about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or what you're going to wear or what you're going to eat, all those things. And so he points to examples in creation as God's demonstration of His commitment to provide. And he says in Matthew 6, verse 30, it's like, look, if God so clothes 
the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will He not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Implying that that's perhaps what they get anxious about. He continues and says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? How am I going to pay this bill? Add your own thing in there. For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So what is little faith characterized by? Anxiety. Stress. Worry. And again, this is not to say that anytime someone expresses concern over a need, they're like, oh, you're just faithless. Right? You don't have enough faith. What I'm talking about Someone with little faith is someone whose entire life and their decision-making and and everything is governed by earthly needs and worry about not having certain things. Little faith is when you think about your kingdom more than you think about God's kingdom. When you're anxious about your kingdom, growing your kingdom, protecting your kingdom. Little faith is when you seek earthly things more than heavenly things, period. Not just in a moment, because we all do that at a moment, as a way of living. You think most of your time about earthly things and not heavenly things. That you stress over your poverty in the world, not necessarily just financial. You stress more over your poverty in the world than you rejoice over your riches in heaven. It characterizes your walk, your faith. Constantly anxious, worried, stressed out. That's one little faith. Second time Jesus uses it is in the midst of a storm. You may remember it's in Matthew chapter 8. As the disciples make their way across the lake in a boat, a great storm ensues. In fact, the word that Matthew uses for the storm is seismos, meaning earthquake. So you can imagine, like, the storm creates tsunami like conditions with waves large enough to swamp this boat that's full of Jesus and his disciples. The conditions are dangerous and violent enough to, to basically fill what is experienced fishermen, Andrew and James and John and Peter. They're terrified. They think they're going to die. They've seen storms before, so this is a storm of storms. Meanwhile, Jesus is sleeping in the back of the boat, snoring away. Matthew chapter 8, verse 25 says, they went to Him and woke Him up. Jesus! In Luke, or might be Mark, it says, don't you care that we're dying? Save us from perishing, Lord! Jesus just says to him, not worried, not anxious. Not, he just says to him, why are you afraid? Oh, you have little faith. Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Little faith characterized by what? Fear. Doesn't mean that any time you have a moment of fear, you're suddenly faithless. But it is to say that those of little faith are characterized by being governed by bad circumstances. 
bad situations more than they are governed by the presence of a good God. That the fear of the circumstances outweighs the fear of God in that moment. Or perhaps many moments. Fear. Anxiety. Third time Jesus uses the word or term little faith is when He walks on water. This is in Matthew chapter 14. The disciples get in the boat, and this time Jesus goes up on a hill. says, I'll meet you. Don't worry. No one knows where He's at. And then in the middle of the sea, in the middle of the night, Jesus comes prancing on the water. I don't think He was prancing, but it would be pretty cool if He was. Okay, comes walking on the water, and they don't recognize Him. And they're like, what is that, a ghost? Who, who is that? And they call out to Him, and He says, don't worry, it's me. They're not sure still. And so Peter, in verse 28 of chapter 14, calls out, and Peter answered Him, Lord, if it is You, command me to come to You on the water. And He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and he walked on the water and came to Jesus. And when he saw the wind, Peter, he was afraid. Then beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out His hand and took hold of him and said to him, Oh, little faith, why'd you doubt? Why'd you doubt? Little faith is characterized by doubt. Now, we have to admit it took some amount of faith for Peter to get out of the boat. But once he took his eyes off Jesus, he began to doubt. And those of little faith trust Jesus when they're in the boat. But when they risk walking atop the water to Him, they begin to see the wind, they begin to doubt the power of the One who beckoned them onto the water can actually keep them afloat. When He says, I want you to do this. This is going to be crazy. This is going to be difficult. You say, okay, I'll take that step. Whoa, 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 whoa. Are you still going to come through? You doubt His power to keep you afloat with the commands that He has given you to follow. Governed by it. Anxiety, fear, doubt. Sounds like a very joyful faith. Sounds horrible. But let's be honest. A lot of us sit there a lot. The last time Jesus uses it, or fourth time He uses it, minus the fifth time in our text, is after He fed the 4,000. If you remember, there was two miracles that He did with feedings, one for five and one for four. Very similar, but yet have their own details that are different. And in the feeding of the 4,000, there were seven baskets of leftovers. And as Jesus is in the boat with them, He warns them, alright, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Well, the disciples, who knows what they did with the seven baskets, but they got no bread. So they're looking around going, leaven, bread? Why is Jesus talking about bread? And they say to Him, in Matthew chapter 16, they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we didn't bring any bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, of you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive, do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gather? The seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gather? Like the feedings were less about filling people's stomachs and more about declaring something about how God works and how Jesus works. 
God doesn't work according to realistic calculations or odds that we can figure out or, or make sense on a chart. In Jesus' economy, in the way God works, that less is often more, small is often bigger, weakness is often powerful, foolishness is often wisdom. God does, we would do well to remember this, God does not work or think like we do. And for us to believe pridefully that we can comprehend everything He's going to do is only going to lead you to little faith, a faith of confusion, where you misinterpret everything and you miscalculate everything and you misunderstand a lot because you think God functions the way you do. And you only accept God and believe God when He works in a way you understand. That brings confusion. That brings little faith. So, this concept of little faith, if we just take Jesus' words and Him even asking, like, why do you doubt? Like, anxiety, fear, doubt, confusion. I would argue by the lack of joy I often see in Christians that many of our faiths are characterized by those four things. That Jesus could easily say to us, you have little faith. You have little faith. So you go, what, what causes this? Like, how, What gets us to this point where we, we get there? Because the disciples, right, they were like, casting out demons. And they get to this one, like, what happened? Something changed. The cause of little faith is revealed actually in the parallel passage, I believe, a little more clearly in the Gospel of Mark. You turn to Mark chapter 9. The same story is recorded. But Mark and Matthew, because they're different people, Mark is most likely writing for Peter. So you got Peter and Matthew kind of experiencing the same thing a little bit from a different angle. And it helps us to, to read both to kind of understand what's going on. In verse 14 of chapter 9, right, the disciples come off the mountain again. The great crowd's there. The father cries out, My son, you heal him, please. I brought him to your disciples and they couldn't do anything. He rebukes the generation again in verse 20. He says, And they brought the boy to him, and when the Spirit saw him, immediately he convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Verse 21. And Jesus asked the Father. So this isn't in Matthew. He's asking some questions. How long has this been happening? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But, Father speaking, if, if you can do if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can... Love that. If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. When the father asks for Jesus' help, Jesus reveals the root of the problem behind our anxiety and our fear and our doubt and our confusion. Not any moments of those. I mean, when you are just governed by that constantly, the root cause is unbelief. Little faith comes from little belief. The Father and His disciples really don't believe. The world and the church is full of believers who hardly believe. See, Genesis 
3 revealed actually what our real problem was. We do not believe God. The enemy, when Satan came and tempted Adam and Eve, he didn't tempt like this. Just eat it, just eat it, just eat it, just eat the apple. Just eat it. Eat it. That's not what he said. If you read Genesis chapter 3, you'll see he wasn't just trying to persuade them to disobey. He tempted them to disbelieve who God was. God's not good. God's not wise. God's not loving. He's actually holding out on you. He knows happiness is when you disobey His Word, He knows what's going to happen. It's going to be awesome. He's evil. He's unloving. See, the cause of little faith characterized by anxiety or fear or doubt or confusion, it's a result of denying things about God. Disbelieving things about God. Let me prove it. When we're anxious about earthly things, and I mean just a life centered on anxiety over earthly things in our own kingdom, it's because we do not believe that God is caring, God is loving, or God is powerful enough to provide. When we fear the storms of life, and again, storms are scary. I don't expect the disciples to sit up and go, this is nothing like, you know, Captain Dan on Forrest Gump, like, whatever, bring it on! It's not like that. Storms come and storms scare. So when those storms of life come, we go into a place of fear where we really believe we're going to die and we're despairing because we do not believe that God is present with us in it. We do not believe that God has actually controlled that storm. We forget that Jesus was pushed, led into the wilderness. That the storm perhaps was brought by God, right? These guys knew how to look for a storm. And a storm of that size would have been coming from miles away. And yet they get in the boat, and then a storm just shows up. Hmm, wonder why. God leads us into storms. God sends us into storms. God brings storms and trials into our lives. And we, in those moments, believe He can't be possibly in control of this. We don't believe He is powerful enough. We are filled with doubt in following Jesus' commands because they're hard at times. They're uncomfortable at times. They're risky and countercultural at times. And they go against our gut sometimes. And we can't possibly believe that, that God is trustworthy. That I know He's asked me to do this, but that can't possibly be right. It just seems so like, like against what everyone else is doing, against what I, I feel. Like there's things in the Bible that offend and should offend your emotions because your emotions are attached to your flesh. They're not purely evil, but they're tainted by evil, as is our intellect. And so we begin to doubt God because like, well, I don't think you're trustworthy. Or we're filled with confusion because we basically have forgotten everything Jesus has already done. And we don't believe that He could possibly be working in such a way that, that we couldn't understand. We've got to be able to chart it on a map and figure it out. So we're filled with confusion. All this goes back to what we believe about God. 
who God is. Is God really good? Is God really great? Is God really all-knowing and all-powerful and eternal and all these things? Is He really loving? That's what it comes down to. In essence, the enemy, we've got three. The enemy, Satan, our flesh, and the world all call out to us to trust ourselves more than God. Similar to the faith of the Israelites, who that's what happened when they were on the bottom of the mountain. They go, well, I guess Moses is gone, and let's just go for it and make our own little golden calf and start worshiping. We'll figure this out. I think these nine disciples basically said this. We can do it on our own. We can do it on our own. They had little faith in Jesus, and they had a lot of faith in themselves. Their ability to figure it out. Their ability to like, another spirit? I got this. Seen this before, guys. Don't worry. Boom. Out. Didn't work. Uh, why isn't that working? thought we could do it. The cause of little faith is unbelief. Jesus provides, though, this remedy to little faith. When the disciples ask why they failed, He responds in Matthew 17, because of your little faith. Now, Mark remembers it a little bit differently. In the Gospel of Mark, in verse 28, he says, when he had entered his house, his disciples come with the same question, asked privately, why could we not cast it out? Why couldn't we do this? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Wait a second. So Matthew says the solution to the problem is faith, and Mark identifies the solution to the problem as prayer. That's either a contradiction or there's very little difference between the two. That they're so intimately connected that we need to pause and go, perhaps there's a solution here to a little faith. See, when the disciples are on the mountain with Jesus, they are told very clearly, you need to listen to my son. Listen to Jesus. And the book of Matthew in particular, and he is the only one who really records it this way, but it is known as the book that the book of saints. Right? Matthew endeavored to basically be a teacher and to not only just include everything Jesus had done, but everything that Jesus had said. Even in the Great Commission at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, he says like, Go and, and go and make disciples and baptize and teach. And so it, part of his emphasis is Jesus as teacher, and we are to listen to him through his word. And the truth is, when you don't listen to Jesus, what happens, like anybody, you begin to assume you know what he's like. You begin to assume you know how he thinks. You begin to assume, I know what he wants. I don't need to listen to him. I don't need to ask. Try that with your spouse. I know, I know what she's thinking. I know what she wants. We need to listen to Jesus, but that's only half of it. We also need to talk with Him. We listen to Jesus through reading and studying and meditating on His Word, and we talk to Jesus through prayer. Like, it's so, all so often we talk about like, 
when we talk about our faith like, oh, my Bible reading and my prayer life. I wonder if we would just instead, instead of characterizing it so mechanically, we go, I need my reading plan and I need my, my special closet time for prayer. Like, instead of characterizing it, why don't we just really believe for a second, right? We're believing about God that Jesus is a person and that we actually have a relationship with Him and that we don't just need to read. We need to listen to Jesus and we need to talk to Jesus like you would in any relationship, especially one that's going to last an eternity in the most important relationship we have. Prayer, I believe, is the remedy to little faith. I think that's what the Scriptures teach. And when He tells His disciples they have little faith, He's telling them that their anxiety and their fear, their doubt, their confusion, even their lack of power to overcome in this situation is the result of little prayer in their lives. And I think that for about 5% of us, our prayer life is not an issue. And for the 95% of us, it's very difficult. It's difficult for me. I have to discipline myself, and I've started to do it again, where I get up, set my alarm, and pray. And sometimes I say absolutely nothing before the Lord. I just sit there. And other times it's chatty Cathy. I'm talking a lot, right? But I think that most, and I might be totally off, but most of our anxiety, and our fear, and our doubts, and our confusion come back to one place, and it is the deepness of our prayer life, the consistency of our prayer life. Prayer is not just sharing and venting all of your feelings and making all these requests to God. I'll give you a little secret. Jesus already knows everything you could possibly share with Him. He doesn't need to know how we feel, but sharing how we feel and, and our struggles and our fears and our doubts reminds us of our need for Him. I've often said that you know God's not going to love you more if you pray to Him more, but you might end up loving Him more if you do. One commentator said, I think very beautifully, prayer is simply faith breathing. It's just the fruit of faith. And I also think it's that, and sometimes it actually helps to nurture and produce faith. We pray when we doubt so that God can help us believe that He is loving and that He's faithful to provide. We pray in the storm that God will help us believe He is present with us. We pray when we doubt Jesus' commands so that He can help us believe that His words are trustworthy. And we pray when we're confused about what God is doing so that He can help us believe that He is doing something far greater than we could ever understand, ever ask, or ever think. That's why we pray. A commitment to pray reveals the disposition of a heart. One that says, I refuse to trust myself. That my spirit is willing, but my flesh, I know how weak it is, and I want to believe God. Prayer is, we've looked, and I, maybe you haven't, but I think often we look at prayer so pragmatically as a means to change our circumstances. Even the questions we ask about prayer, does prayer really move the hand of God? Prayer is less about changing our circumstances and infinitely more about changing our hearts. 
when we're struggling, if you're struggling with anxiety right now over earthly things, doubt, fear, even confusion, do you believe God enough to pray? Even a little? Jesus says later in chapter 17, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Like, we often think that, like, the contrast to little faith is big faith. I need big faith. I need to ask for big things. Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't say, like, the size of your faith will be the size of the result. He says, we don't need big faith to do big things. All we need is a mustard seed. A small but genuine flake of faith. A little bit of real prayer can accomplish what looks impossible. And moving your mountain might simply be removing that anxiety of that situation that's overwhelming you. Moving that mountain might be just giving you peace in the midst of a storm that doesn't make any sense. That might be the mountain. Not some amazing thing to God, but some mountain in your heart that's going to move. That happens through prayer. Where, as we conclude, to get the power to do this? And this is is a passage of really um, still trying to understand. And that's this. On the night Jesus was betrayed, after the Last Supper, after he sang some songs with his friends, after his friend, Judas, left to betray him, he took his disciples into a garden. Right? The Bible starts in a garden. You see the cross. The garden right before it. As his disciples slept, Jesus, it says in the Gospel of Luke, most specifically, he endured such deep agony over the upcoming death that it says he sweat great drops of blood. Now, theologically, I'm just going to be honest, I don't know exactly what's happening. Let's just look at the humanity for a second. I think you can say for certain that Jesus was anxious, a little stressed. Perhaps he feared. No. Did he doubt? Did he have a moment of confusion? To say no, I think, as I spit on myself, to say no is to basically argue that like those things are sinful. You realize anxiety is not sinful. I'm sure it can lead you to sin and fear and doubt, but it's not sinful to have a doubt. It's not sinful to be confused about something. So if we just sit on that, that Jesus was experiencing like an infinite level of this, and it wasn't just the cross, it wasn't just a death on a cross, it was the idea of he was going to be infinite, like separated from this relationship he had in a moment, experience the separation that we were supposed to deserve. There's much more going on burdening the sins of the world. How did he respond? Like, what's he going to do with those feelings? He's, he has those genuine feelings. He is 
human fully in every way, has these feelings, what does he do? Verse 38 of Matthew 26, which we'll somehow preach next year. Right? Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed. And he prays his prayer twice. Saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. My Father, as he's sweating blood, he's fallen down. How does he deal with it? He prays, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Like, what is the heart of that prayer? In the midst of anxiety, in the midst of fear and doubt and confusion, it's a prayer of just surrender. It's a prayer of surrender. As I said, on the cross, Jesus endured all the wrath and all the separation from the presence of God that we deserve so that we might enter into the joy of His presence without fear and with all joy Jesus prayed to endure the cross for us, I believe, so that we might be able to, in a very genuine way, pray to endure whatever cross we are to take. Prayer gives us power. It doesn't change every circumstance. It doesn't remove every hardship. I believe it. prayer is the means through which we Go before the Lord and we simply say, I can't understand. I can't control. I can't overcome. But Jesus does. But Jesus will. But Jesus can. Jesus has. Right? In the mid- That's what prayer is. Unlike the disciples who said, we can do it. I'll figure this out. I know what's going on. Prayer gets it to a place where we say, I don't get it. I don't know, but I'm going to trust. And that's something that God does. That's not something we generate. That's something that you can pretend. But mysteriously and miraculously and wonderfully, it comes. If we would get on our face when that anxiety overwhelms us, if we get on our face when that fear and the storms overcome us. If we get on our face when we doubt and we question, if we get on our face when we're confused, I believe we'd have peace. I'll close with a verse out of Philippians, which is the first verse I ever memorized. It's a beautiful verse that comes from a man who is writing from a jail cell, and he says this, Rejoice in the Lord always! And again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Okay. The Lord is at hand. Semicolon. English teacher, what's next? A dependent clause based off of that, right? They're connected. It's not just the Lord is at hand, period. On to the next thought. The Lord is at hand, so do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, well, what's that? Anxiety, fear, trouble, confusion, doubt. By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, remember it. 
Let your requests be made known to God. And everything will be all right. And the clouds will part and the sun will shine and nothing bad will ever come to you. No! Here's the promise. The peace of God. And that's really all we want. We really want the peace of God. No one cares about the storm. You just care about the fear that the storm creates. I just want peace. It comes through prayer. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. How can you suffer? How can you experience that and still be at peace? No one is suggesting that I've got cancer. Woohoo! But I've seen people suffer and say, I'm at peace. It is well with my soul. You know how they got to that place? It wasn't by them rethinking theology, by them getting before the Lord and letting the Lord change their heart. It's a peace that surpasses all understanding. And it's a peace that guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Keep this day. I, I hope, and I, I confess, um, I am a poor example of a prayerful man. And that's why I'm disciplining myself every day to get up like crack of dawn and pray because I suck at it so bad. And as a result, I think, as I just kind of examine my life and was in this passage going, I wonder sometimes the things that I fret over, if that's just a direct result of the fact that I'm not before, on my face before the Lord enough. Not to impress God, but to have my heart changed. That's what I want. I want my heart changed. I want to feel the peace of God despite whatever conflict might come. I encourage all of us to be men and women, husbands and wives, dads and moms, children, a church full of people who pray and see what God does. We come to the table every Sunday for a reason. The wine and the bread represent Jesus Christ's body broken for us and Christ's blood shed for us. And it is the ultimate declaration, right? This is like prayer made visible. I can't. This is the proof that I can't. This is the proof to say I am more sinful and broken than I can ever know or admit. But it's also the proof that says you're more loved than you could possibly imagine. So this is just our prayer lived out to say I believe. I believe that I can't. I believe that I won't understand. I believe that I alone cannot overcome but Jesus has. And that's where I'll put my trust. Not in something I can do, something I can understand, but something Jesus has done for me. If you're a believer, this is for you. If you're not a believer, I would call to you and plead that you would repent. That you would turn from your sin and believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raises the dead and you'll be saved. And then join us as we celebrate and we sing. And our singing after sermon should be joyful recognizing that, okay, Lord, you know I suck, but you rock. I mean, that's, that's pretty much end of sermon every time. Right? Declaration that I am broken, that Jesus is not, He knows it, and He loves me, we should sit. Pray with you. Father God, we come before You in all transparency, declaring, Lord, and thanking You for Your mercy. I admit, Father, and anyone else may admit as well that we experience anxiety and fear and doubt and confusion because we don't believe. 
that we recognize that we need help with our beliefs. That our hearts are prone to wander. And that you give us a means of grace by which we can experience peace. It's prayer. Father, would you draw us near to you? Help us to draw near to you. And as we gather there, Lord, may we just sit in your presence and may you extinguish all of our cares away as we remember all that you have done through your Son and all that we have. Let us not focus on the riches and the promises of this world, but on the riches we have in Christ. Remembering that we are forgiven, we are loved, and we are children of yours, to whom you always give your best because you are good and we believe it, and you are great and we believe it, you are gracious and we believe it. It is in the name of Jesus Christ we pray and hope. Amen.